Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as uh, a brother Dave said, you are our great conqueror, Lord, yet you are also a God of mercy and love and grace, Lord. And if it weren't for your son Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, Lord, we would not be worthy to be here and worship you, Lord. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your, your infinite mercy and your great grace. And we ask that you speak to us this morning through your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read the, uh, the passage from 1 Corinthians 11, which we often read on Communion Sunday, but I'm going to focus uh, my sermon on verse 26. Now, Paul writes, instructing the Corinthian church, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Praise God for his word. So again, verse, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When Paul begins the sentence with four, he's referring back to all of his previous instructions to the Corinthian church and and by extension to us, regarding the observance of the Lord's table. Now, four introduces the explanation for the reason or the purpose of the observance, and that is to proclaim Christ's death. In other words, when you properly, according to Paul's instructions, celebrate the Lord's table, whenever you remember Christ through this ordinance, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the purpose of the Lord's table. So with, with verse 26, you know, perhaps the first question we, we, we should ask is, what does it mean to proclaim? Or what does Paul mean uh, by proclaim? Now, the way Paul uses the word here in verse 26 is from the Greek. It's, it's a, a Greek word called kantangelo. It means to declare openly, proclaim, preach or even celebrate. There's this idea of celebration. So it's a positive and public uh, declaration or, or proclamation. It's something that you can't wait to share. Um, you know, have you ever had good news that you wanted to share with somebody and that person wasn't around and, and you just couldn't wait to tell that person? Uh, and, and you had to wait with this anticipation because 
you know, you just wanted to share that news and you wanted to share it face to face. I know last year, I think about 53 or 54 weeks ago, uh, we were on our way uh, from church to our pastor's house uh, waiting for a call from Eric uh, regarding uh, this church. And we got the call while we were on the road, and Eric said, um, the church has called you to be our pastor. And of course, that was good news to us. And um, we were trying to decide while we were following our pastor to his house whether we should call him and tell him now or whether we should wait to the house. So we decided we would wait to the house, which was another 20 minutes. <laughs> and uh, when we finally got there, we told him the good news. And of course, we made a bunch of other phone calls uh, throughout the day. And so we just couldn't wait uh, to proclaim that good news. So that, that's the idea here of proclaim, declare openly, preach, celebrate. So then the next question uh, becomes, well, why proclaim in that way as a positive public celebration the Lord's death? I mean, we, we might ask ourselves this morning, as we prepare to proclaim Jesus' death, you know, why don't we proclaim his incarnation when Jesus became man? I mean, after all, believing in his incarnation is essential for salvation. Or, or, or why don't we proclaim his resurrection? Uh, after all, Romans 1.4 says that by his resurrection from the dead, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. Or, or why doesn't the church proclaim Jesus' ascension into heaven uh, where he's seated, as Scripture says, at the right hand of the majesty on high? And that's the place from where Jesus rules and reigns over his, his spiritual kingdom, us, the church, that meets here in this building right now at, at this very moment. So why don't we proclaim those things? Well, well the answer to each of those questions is the same. None of these facts, none of these events purchased our salvation. And none of these facts or events purchased the church, uh, those who have been uh, redeemed by Christ's death. So it's neither in his incarnation, nor his resurrection, nor his ascension that sin is forgiven. It's in Jesus' blood that forgiveness is made possible, and it was in his death that forgiveness was given. The, the forgiveness of sins that's offered to the world is made possible only through what took place at the cross, the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the offering of Christ as the Lamb of God. Now we use a fancy word, atonement, for this. Atonement basically means the reconciliation of God and humanity through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So the reconciliation of God and humanity through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the atonement. Now to the world, and increasingly uh, even to many Christians, uh, proclaiming the death of, of Jesus, especially by crucifixion, it, it's not very appealing. It, it's not very attractive. 
You think, well, well, can't the gospel be shared without talking about blood and death you know, and wrath and judgment and, and crucifixion? I mean, Christ's death on the cross was so violent. It, it, it was gruesome. And, and some would say a hateful act, especially from a God who's supposed to be a God of love, a, a God of peace. Some in the church have even characterized Jesus' suffering death as, and I quote, a cosmic or divine child abuse. And they also ask, what kind of God breaks his own commandment not to kill? So that's what's out there. They're embarrassed and even apologetic about the whole suffering, cross, death, you know, thing. But none of this is new. It's not new. Paul, the Apostle Paul, anticipated uh, these kinds of responses. He wrote uh, some 2,000 years ago that Jesus' death on the cross was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 1. And in the same chapter, uh, Paul recognized that the Lord's death had the appearance of shameful Weakness. But Paul himself had arrived in Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So that the people would focus not on him, but on the message of the cross, on Christ's death. Paul wrote that when he was with the Corinthians, he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul wrote in Galatians 6.4, he was determined never to boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So clearly the Lord's death was central uh, to Paul's evangelism. But also the Lord's death was his focus as he joined uh, fellow believers at the Lord's table. So why focus on the Lord's death? Let me throw another uh, big word at you, a, a biblical principle that we call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's not as complicated as it sounds. We've already talked about it a little bit here, and it's taught throughout the Bible, especially by Paul. So I've already defined atonement as the reconciliation of God and humanity through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and the penal substitution part is how we were reconciled to God. The penal, in penal substitution, the penalty, the penalty or punishment that is due to us for our transgressions, for our sins, is paid by a substitute. And that substitute is Jesus Christ. So the principle of penal substitution is the basis of the Old Testament sacrificial system. God told Adam that the penalty, is that word penal again, for sin was death in Genesis 2. In the Old Testament sacrifices, the people placed their hands on the sacrificial animals, identifying with them, and then the animals were put to death in Leviticus 4. So this, this depicted the transfer of sin and guilt from the sinner to the substitute. 
The sinner could live because the animal died in the sinner's place, bearing the punishment the sinner deserved. But Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the animal sacrifices of the old covenant weren't effective for true atonement and true reconciliation. They were types or or shadows that that looked ahead that, that pointed to the only true atoning sacrifice, which was offered once and for all at the cross at Calvary by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this this final and and only effective act of penal substitution was foreshadowed by the the entire Old Covenant sacrificial system. And it's actually predicted in Isaiah 53. Now listen for the uh, substitution words here. He was pierced, Jesus, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So Jesus was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastised, he was wounded. It's all referring to uh, Christ's suffering and death for, or instead of, our transgressions. Instead of our iniquities. We're the ones who've gone astray. We're the ones who have turned, turned away from God. Yet God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all as our substitute, incurring God's wrath himself instead of us. And that's, that's penal substitutionary atonement. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why We're here this morning to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And far far from being divine child abuse or or the act of a hateful, vengeful God or hypocrisy from, from a God who claims to be all about love and commands people not to kill but to love one another yet kills his own innocent son, far from those things, Christ's death on the cross as our substitute, was the greatest act of love in the history of the universe. Amen? Amen. Going back to Hebrews, uh, we read in chapter 10, the author quoting Psalm 40 as if spoken by Jesus. He writes, now picture Jesus saying this, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So animal sacrifices did not delight God because animals could not finally represent humans in their sin. 
And so God, the Father, prepared a body in the incarnation for God the Son. He prepared a body for Jesus. The animals were unwilling or unthinking substitutes. But Jesus declares that his sacrifice was not only voluntary, but it was obedient. Jesus says, I have come to do your will, he says to the Lord. So Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Also, animals uh, could only be physically unblemished or, or physically clean or spotless. But Jesus was morally without blemish. He was perfectly clean. He was, he was perfectly spotless, perfectly sinless. And animals had to be sacrificed over and over again, year after year, repeatedly. But Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. No more sacrifices needed. So the entire storyline of Scripture, the, the history of redemption, is the story of God providing substitutes for His people to cover their shame, to, to cover their guilt, to bear the judgment that they deserved so that they might be accepted by Him, to be reconciled to Him. So the Bible is an incredible story of of undeserved grace and amazing love. So all along, God's plan and purpose was not only to provide a substitute, but His plan and purpose was to be that substitute in the person of His Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, bearing in Himself the punishment that we couldn't bear and the shame that we uh, could in no way overcome. As the song goes, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I am alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me. And we also, we also can't forget the, the scandalous idea that not only do we proclaim that Jesus died for sinners, He died with sinners. Luke 23, 33 says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals. One on His right, one on his left. And that's not very sexy either. One writer said, to declare the Lord's death is to confess that we are among the sinners with whom he died. We are among the sinners with whom he died. And critics don't like to hear that. But when the Apostle John writes, that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That included the criminals. That includes you and me, by the way, also criminals in the eyes of God, apart from Christ. 
So if you're out there thinking that your life is so messed up that you've done too many bad things that God can't possibly save you, well, it, it's not true. And if you've been uh, suffering so much that you think that God couldn't possibly care, well, that's not true either. The same God who died for you also cares for you. He suffered as well. Scripture teaches that apart from Christ, I was a sinner by nature and choice. I deserved the just penalty of sin, death and hell, but God sent His Son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice to live the perfect life that I never lived and then die the death that I should have died to reconcile me back to Himself. At the cross, Jesus willingly took on God's wrath in my place in order to give me His perfect life and righteousness. So through faith and repentance, I can now experience reconciliation with God and unbroken fellowship with Him. Not only now, but in, in days to come, the age to come. So you're messed up. You, you, you've done some bad things. You, you think you don't deserve God's love. Well, welcome to the human race. God so loved the world, and that includes you. Some of you have suffered deeply, and you're suffering even now. You're worn out. Your faith is weak at best. But God knows. Even in the midst of your pain and suffering, you can rest assured with your faith intact knowing that your greatest problems, not to minimize the problems you have now, but your greatest problems, sin, death, and eternal judgment, have been dealt with through Jesus Christ permanently. Finally, along with proclaiming that Jesus died in my place for my sins, penal substitutionary atonement, I can also proclaim the following things. I am not guilty. I am not cursed. I am not defeated. I am not crushed. I am not forsaken. I am not unclean. And I am not without hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Those, those who believe, those who have trusted Christ, no, no matter what your situation, you can look to every day with, with the unshakable hope that your greatest need, the rescue from the just wrath of God, was met in Christ. Praise God for that.